Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein. I'm an audiologist, speaker, and parent coach. And on this podcast, we talk about the personal, everyday experiences of people connected to audiology. We hear from parents who share their experience of their child having hearing loss, from professionals in various fields with expert advice and wisdom on the everyday challenges and opportunities that we have for communicating and connecting to our children, to our patients, to our students. Way back in episode 18 of the podcast, We had Chloe Tompkins as a guest, and she talked about how she incorporates American Sign Language into her music classes in order to make the classes fun and accessible and inclusive for children of all hearing abilities and using different modalities. And today's guest is Jacqueline Briggs, so Chloe introduced us, and I cannot wait for you to hear Jacqueline's inspiring words. She's also a teacher, and she has a very personal experience with hearing loss to share, and I'm going to let her tell it. So just before I play that amazing interview for you, I want to remind you that you are the most important part of the All About Audiology community. The listeners, thank you for sharing the show and thank you for your comments, your questions. Absolutely come and connect with me over on Instagram and on Facebook. And if you want to be a guest on the show or nominate a guest on the show, feel free to reach out to me and we will continue to spread hope and self-efficacy and confidence in the world. So welcome Jacqueline and thank you for listening. Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host Dr. Lilach Saperstein and music is just one of those amazing things that we all enjoy in our life that we have as part of our experience and today I'd like to dive into music and how we can use music when we're educating deaf and hard of hearing children. And my special guest today is Jacqueline Briggs, who is a music teacher and a teacher of the deaf at the Clark School for the Deaf in New York. And Jacqueline is going to share her personal story with hearing loss as well. So welcome to the show, Jacqueline. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm so excited for you to share your story and come on the show. And first, I'll give, you know, the background to how we've connected. Way back in episode 18 of the podcast, we had a very wonderful guest, Chloe Tompkins. And she also is doing music education and also shared her journey with hearing loss. And that's how I connected with Jacqueline. So go and listen to episode 18 to hear Chloe's story. But I'm so excited to learn more about your journey. Where do you want to start? (laughs) There's so many things we could start with. I mean, I met Chloe probably two years ago. I can't remember now at a deaf music event. That's how we met. We were involved in um, in a performance together. And she is just an absolutely wonderful person and introduced me to your podcast. So very exciting. Well, first of all, what's going on with schooling? You know, like how has COVID impacted everything in your life? Like, let's just start there because that's what your mind is on the disaster that is 2020. <laughs> I don't even have a word to describe it. I'm like sitting here thinking and say like, it's been an adventure. It's it's definitely been an adventure to say the least. For us, schools closed March 16th and it's been a little challenging because we it was a Sunday evening and suddenly we all found ourselves having to figure out how to teach, you know, students with hearing loss through online platforms, which was 
presented a lot of different difficulties. Um, but it, you know, we, we did well, we managed, we, we all learned different tricks and, and started putting stuff together. You know, we are doing our summer session still online. What age students do you teach? Through school, my students come out of EI typically, and they come into to Clark and I have an integrated, an integrated class and they are three and four years old. That's amazing. And what's the approach, uh, the communication approach at Clark? It's an auditory, auditory verbal. We take a lot of listening and spoken language strategies into the classroom. Okay. And so for those listeners who are not familiar with terms, would you just give us a little rundown of what that means? We use listening and spoken language strategies to help children that have hearing loss that use listening technologies such as hearing aids or cochlear implants or Bajas to learn to listen and speak. That is our, that is our goal. And so we you know, we have at Clark, New York, they have early intervention programs and, and they have classrooms for preschool. And the idea is, you know, they would go to kindergarten when they're ready, when the time is right. So all the students, it's very important that they always have their devices on, that everything is working because you're primarily using auditory and spoken modalities as opposed to sign for everybody, the uninitiated of what the uh, different approaches are. Besides for teaching your adorable preschoolers, you also incorporate tons of music. I use music in, in everything that I do. I use music for routines. I use music for transitions. We use music when we are asking questions even because we've found that using music through songs and, you know, finger movements and gross motor, you know, large movements that we, we help them learn to develop speech patterns. So they start talking with different intonation. They start like, you know, raising their voice at the end of a question, like, what are you doing? You know, they, they're picking up on natural speech patterns and we, we incorporate it through music. So we do a lot of call and response. We'll do a lot of conversational turns. We'll, you know, recently I found that a lot of my students want to sing on their own, which is really funny to have that happen through zoom instead of have that happen in person. And so we give them opportunities. You know, we have different routine songs that they'll sing and I'll give the option. I'll say, does anybody want to sing? And almost, you know, we, we have almost the whole class that will raise their hands. It's really exciting. I had eight. Um, I currently have five in my summer for my summer term. So that's good. a nice group. We have enough interaction and also attention. That's beautiful. Yes. Radio. Nice. A couple of episodes back, we had Michelle Riddle on the show, who's an occupational therapist. And she talked a lot about um, integrating movement of your body and rhythm and hearing and how all those things, when you're using more than one modality at once, it's way better for following directions and like supporting the development of all those different areas. So that's amazing that you use that with the kids. And and so when you've moved over to Zoom, how do you manage that, you know, without everyone jumping out of their chairs? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I started doing my own daily like music class. Before when we were in the classroom, I just did music in everything that I did. And I and I still did that, you know, when we were on Zoom. But when the platform switched, it made it harder to make everything seamless. I couldn't just, you know, do transitions with a song as easily as I had in the classroom. I still did them, but they served a different purpose. I started doing a music class through Zoom every day. I do a music class with my students and we do a lot of different songs. So we, we do a lot of songs where we are up and moving and dancing around. I do a free dance. And for me, it's a little bit more performance-based. I can't interact with them as I would have typically, you know, because then Zoom's microphone doesn't react as well. And then you get everybody that's talking over each other. So for me, it's a little bit more performance-based, but I do ask them a lot of questions and I'll forget the words of a song and ask them to sing it, or I'll sing the wrong words and ask them to correct it. And they do almost always, they, they correct everything that I do wrong. 
which is really exciting for me. But we, I do a lot of large movement with them. And so we'll do like the hokey pokey. We'll do um, songs that have large movement incorporated into them. So there's a goldfish song that we do and we pretend that we're goldfish and we're swimming and we do a free dance. So I'll pick a different song daily and we just dance around on Zoom together. So we have like a big dance party and it's it's a lot of fun actually. Yes, dance party every day. It's <laughs> just Everyone needs to incorporate that into their daily routine at all ages. Yes. It's a lot of fun. I have to tell you, it's one of the highlights of my day. It used to make me so nervous to have to do it on Zoom, but then it just became like, I love it. I look forward to it every day. Okay. So now, Jacqueline, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you got interested in Zephyr and, you know. I grew up in a very musical family. Both of my parents are music teachers. When I was a little girl, the only thing I ever wanted to do was sing. And so I was singing from a very young age. I sang all through elementary school, middle school, high school. And I was a junior in high school and was preparing to do my college auditions the following fall. And I was in a car accident. I was in a car accident at the end of my junior year. I was the passenger in a car that was T-boned on the right-hand side. And the other car hit my seat and I lost my hearing. I lost the hearing in my right ear. Yeah, it was, um, my life changed instantly. And at the time, to sort of put it in perspective, I was so badly injured that the hearing loss was not a priority. It was minor compared to some of the other injuries that I had sustained. So you were in this accident. You got Mm -hmm. T-boned directly into where you were sitting, the passenger seat of the right side of the car. Yes. Okay. In America, right side passenger seat. And so what were, was the extent of your injuries? If you don't mind sharing that and what, yeah, what was that process? Like you said, instantaneously, were you still conscious? Like, do you mind talking about that? Absolutely not. Um, absolutely not. So I was knocked unconscious. I actually came to at some point after the accident and then blacked out again. I don't have much recollection of what happened at the actual scene. But I know that the EMTs are having a hard time getting me out of the car because my feet were just, my legs were stuck under the dashboard. Like they just were having a hard time getting me out. We did not know the full extent of my injuries until they, they started running tests. And at, after the test started to come back, we, I had extensive injuries to the right side of my body. So I had broken my right clavicle. I had six broken ribs. I had two punctured lungs. I had breaks in my pelvis and my tailbone, you name it. At the time they thought that I had a skull fracture. I found out almost a decade later, that wasn't exactly the case. Yeah. Significant injuries. They weren't really sure if I was going to walk. So I was planned. I was scheduled to go in for this huge surgery where they were going to put a screw through my tailbone. The doctors were going to put a screw through my tailbone. And I witnessed a miracle, I think, because the day before that surgery was scheduled, I was able to sort of sit up in a chair under some pain management. And my doctor said, well, if she can sit up, then we're not going to do the surgery. So I definitely witnessed a miracle there because I'm walking again. Like I, I walked about six or seven weeks after my car accident. We weren't sure when it originally happened, if I would walk, you know, it's so many crazy things. I witnessed many, many miracles, many, many miracles of healing. And so my journey just continues. <laughs> well, I have chills running down my spine. <laughs> That is, oh my gosh, unbelievable experience. And you were in high school. Yeah, I was 17. Yeah. And at what point was the hearing, you know, something that you noticed or addressed? I have a memory of telling my doctor that I could not hear out of my right ear and I was in the emergency room. I don't remember what was said. I know that I went for quite a few scans after that. They were they were running some CAT scans on my head. But, but you have a punctured lung and all of that other stuff. Yeah. 
not like the highest priority, but you know, that's what I'm saying. Like within, within a couple of weeks, did you have other testing or was it like way later after all the other feeling, you know, your PT for more important things? My timeline is a little off. I was still in the hospital when they started running scans because they were looking for a concussion and some, you know, for injuries on my head too. So they were scanning, but okay. it was sort of inconclusive at what, what point the hearing loss was diagnosed because they were kind of thinking it was going to come back. And then they had, they had run an MRI and the doctor and the lab tech couldn't agree on where it wasn't, he wasn't a lab tech. I shouldn't say that, but the the doctor and there's somebody else involved couldn't agree on whether or not I had a skull fracture. And so they sort of went back and forth on, she does have a skull fracture. She doesn't have a skull fracture. And so initially they diagnosed it as I had sustained a skull fracture behind my right ear, essentially, and fluid in the cochlea drained and the hair cells went flat. That's what they were saying temporal bone mm-hmm. that houses our cochlea and then it was definitely sensory neural yep in case. okay what happened next what happened next is after i got home and i started walking again i was in multiple kinds of therapies physical therapy occupational therapy and i i decided that i was going to try music therapy i remember being in the hospital and my parents were really pushing for the ent at the hospital to look at my ear and he was very passive about it and they kept saying you know you don't understand she's a singer she's a singer please look at her ears and basically the answer we got was well do something else And so I decided after I got out of the hospital, it was my senior year. I went through my senior year doing music therapy at Beth Israel Hospital in New York City. There's a called the Louis Armstrong Foundation for Music Therapy, I believe. And I had had a music therapist there that I saw and worked with for that year. And she was phenomenal. And then I graduated high school, graduated late, but I graduated high school and decided to go to my community college. And I I was like dabbling. I was like, I'm going to try and be a music major. But in the back of my head, I was thinking at some point, I'm going to have to switch majors because this isn't going to work. And two years later, later, I graduated as a music major and I had been accepted to a four-year school for a vocal performance degree in New Jersey. And I finished my degree there. And I had always sort of through my own process of learning how to sing, you know, suddenly with without one ear working, I was going through the process of figuring out what that meant for me. You know, how do you, how do I sing now when I, when I only have one typically hearing ear, how do I adjust to my new normal? So I took voice lessons and I kept studying all through college um, and obviously graduated with my vocal performance degree, but I got really intrigued in the overlap that exists between music and deaf education. This was like super intriguing to me. And I started teaching early childhood music together classes. I had gone and gotten a certification for music together. I started teaching these kids and they're like two and three years old and I absolutely loved it. It was one of my one of my uh, my favorite things. And I decided I was going to start looking for graduate programs. You just wanted the dance parties. That's what you were. Yep, I wanted the dance parties. You got it. So I started looking at graduate programs and I applied to um, Teachers College Columbia University in New York. And when I was in there, like checking out the program for, for music education, I realized that I could do this interdisciplinary master's in music and deaf ed. I was like, well, that's really interesting. I'm really going to look at this program. So I applied to the music education program. I wrote in my statement of purpose, I want to do an interdisciplinary master's program. And so I I ended up doing that. I did two masters in three years. Okay. And so one in music therapy and one in deaf ed. Yeah, it's a music ed degree. So I have a music ed degree and then one in in deaf education. At any of this point, like how relating to the fact that you had lost your hearing in the right ear, is it something you had accepted? We're still like kind of unsure if it was going to be permanent. Like where were you in that stage? 
Um, what a loaded question. I, there was a part of me that was significantly in denial for a very, for, for a few years, I would say, because it's hard, you know, you live, you live your life one way and suddenly it's so different and there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. And I hadn't done anything for that change to begin with. Like I was just sitting the wrong place at the wrong time. And so it was very hard to come to terms with that to, it was hard to come to terms with that. But at the same time, I learned that I was going to be okay. Anyway, I was still learning how to sing. I was learning to use my body as an ear. I was learning to feel vibrations and feel things differently. And I was still learning to, to sort of make up for what I viewed as this deficit. I know much better now, but at the time when I was navigating this to me, it seemed like something that was going to hold me back. And I learned much differently because of everything that I've managed to accomplish anyway. Yeah. And did you ever see, did you ever have audiologists or other people offering all sorts of devices like cross hearing aid or mini mics or like at what point were people trying to offer you treatments or were you looking for that? Did any of that happen? It was offered to me at the beginning when I was still, when I was still in the hospital, I was in a rehabilitation hospital, you know, working on my physical, um, my physical needs at that time. And we, there was an audiologist that was offering me a Baja. We chose at that time not to do it just because there was so much else going on that we weren't sure at that particular moment that the Baja was the right fit. I wasn't offered a cross hearing aid until much later, but once I left the hospital, my hearing loss, I just was like, okay, this is it. And I was the one that never sought out to, to another, like sought another audiologist to see what my other options would be. And can you tell us a little bit about the experience, especially from someone who grew up hearing in both ears, typically hearing, and then had this very dramatic change to having only one-sided hearing because many of the parents who, who are listening to this, you know, talk about they have a child who is born with one typical ear, unilateral hearing loss or asymmetrical hearing loss. And I think you're in an exact position to try to describe what that was like, especially knowing that it was different before. It was, you know, I, I think I had a lot of misconceptions about myself because things I heard were things like, you have one good ear, you'll be fine. And we know, I know a lot differently now. It was really hard to navigate because especially when I was in college, I was failing things. I was failing classes because, you know, I didn't have access, the access to information that I needed. I didn't have captions. I didn't have anything that was helping me. And this hearing loss was so new at the time. And so I can remember studying for exams and not having a clue when we talked about information that was on the exam. Like I just missed it entirely. And I can, I can also, if you go back and look at my notes from that time, I have like the first half of one thought paired with the second half of a completely different thought. And I really did try, like, it, you know, I, there were moments where I felt like there has to be something wrong with me. I have to, like, I'm not smart. I'm not intelligent. I can't take tests well. I'm, I, I always blamed myself. Like there was something wrong with, with me in the way that I, that I think even with that in mind, I was able to graduate with a 3.7 GPA. So I worked really, really hard for it though. And then when I went to grad school, I was accepted in, you know, at teacher's college. Um, and I did the two masters in three years. And it wasn't until I started my deaf ed masters that I started to learn. This was two years ago that I started to learn about myself. And I started to learn, no, there's nothing wrong with me. I, I didn't have access to the information I need. I, I didn't have the kinds of things that I needed so that I could be successful. And once I had a captionist with me in 
class. It totally changed my world around. Suddenly I was able to participate in conversations when before I was like, I don't know what's going on. I don't want to talk because I'm afraid I'm going to say something that's irrelevant to the conversation. Tell us, tell us what, it, what you said that you finally had access to. Oh, I had a captionist. Okay, yeah. Okay, so now you were like following what's happening. Yeah, and that's the thing. We we there's been a shift in the the whole conversation around unilateral hearing loss. Yes. Where before it was exactly that misconception: one ear is good enough. You know, at least you have one. Which, right. As an aside, any sentence that starts with "at least" is not right. going to. It's not going to end well. Like, stop minimizing people and don't bring up things that are not relevant. Okay. Right. <laughs> Just as a, you know, in general, as like a brief process, if people are sad or grieving something important, whether or not it's, you know, a death or something they've lost, that's not a person, but other grief in lots of different ways, don't say at least. Anyway, right. <laughs> that's not helping. Validation is more important. But back to the unilateral hearing. Uh, it's only been, I think, in probably the last like seven to 10 years. So much research is like, no, no, no. Children with one ear do really, really great when we help their other ear hear in other ways. And what you're missing is that sound processing, background noise reduction, all these things that our brain does with the sounds when we have two ears. Uh, it's kind of like if you have two microphones in a system and like in your phone, you actually have two microphones there and your microphone, like the software and hardware is doing a lot of things so that it will background noise filter stuff that's coming from behind the phone. So you, you'll hear like things from how it's catching it. Like when you go from speaker to not speaker, whatever, like through the phone and to the speaker, like there's a lot of different things, even just in your cell phone of like all this microphone technology Anyway, that's an analogy to what our brain does when we have input from two sides. A lot of processing happens with that crossover of those pathways where things are redundant. There's a difference in time. Like if someone's on your left, the sound reaches your left ear faster than it reaches your right ear. And that time delay, even though it's micro milliseconds or I don't know the exact word. <laughs> what the actual difference is, that time difference is super critical information. It also is louder to the ear that is closer. So there's a level difference. We have all these different things, interoral time difference, interoral level difference. That's some technical language for you. But anyway, it, it is amazing to see how hard you had to work to compensate, how exhausting that must have been. And on top of all that, that you, you know, had internalized that as being your, your own inept, ineptitude, whatever, internalizing that as being your fault or that you weren't trying hard enough. Like, I'm, I'm so sorry that happened, but I'm also so happy that you can now talk about it and that you got help. <laughs> What happened next? While I was working on my deaf ed master's, I started with some summer courses in the summer of 2018. So I graduated with my first master's and three days later, essentially like officially started my second, even though I had done one or two classes prior to that. And I was in this class about, about auditory verbal therapy and language habilitation. And I loved my professor. She was so passionate about her work um, and, and everything that she did. And so she started talking about like cochlear implants. And I mean, this is, these are all things that I knew, but for some reason didn't really understand how they applied to me. And so she and I were talking about cochlear implants one day. And she said, well, you know, if you have a sensory neural hearing loss, you can benefit from a cochlear implant. That's something you should definitely look at. And I was really like hands off about it. I was like, no, I don't think so. You know, 
Well, what I wanted was to be able to have a captionist in school, like to have somebody that came to my classes with me, but I hadn't had an audiogram in close to 10 years. So I needed an updated audiogram. So I contacted um, somebody at Columbia Medical and I went in for my, my first audiogram in a long time. Nothing had changed. That right ear was still, it's a profound loss. I, you know, I think it was, I was up over 120 decibels and didn't respond to anything in that ear. So it's a profound loss, very profound. And I started thinking about the possibilities of like, maybe I can get a cross hearing aid. And so I was struggling with some vertigo at the time, some very weird vertigo that was leaving me unable to work for multiple days at a time. And so I went from the the audiologist and I made an appointment with one of the otolaryngologists at Columbia and I waited two months to see him. And so when we went in um, and we were talking to him about a few different options like the cross hearing aid. And so we were talking about what the vertigo was. And and so he scheduled me for some scans on my head to show what my possibilities were for either a Baja or maybe a cochlear implant or just what the possibilities would be for any kind of hearing device that I could have. So I went in for that on Halloween of this past year is Halloween 2018. And we went in for these scans fully expecting to hear that the auditory nerve had been severed, that I had a a skull fracture there, that I wasn't going to be a candidate for any of these things because that's what we had been told. So I go through all of these scans and we go into the doctor's office and my father had come with me that day. And so we're sitting there and the doctor says, okay, so your scans are completely clear. And my father goes, oh, so you mean the skull fracture healed? And the doctor goes, no, you never had one. So we were like stunned. We're sitting there like, what does this mean? I don't, I don't understand. And so, I mean, obviously I took a shot to the head in the car accident, you know, but there was, there was no skull fracture. Like the inner ear was totally intact. And so I went from having no options to suddenly having multiple options from, you know, you could get a Baja, so you could get a cochlear implant, you know, um, the cochlear implant was, we weren't sure because it's so, it's not totally common to see somebody with a unilateral hearing loss with one implant. They, at least in my experience, I haven't seen that many people with a unilateral hearing loss end up with a cochlear implant. In my case, they they fought for the cochlear implant because of the tinnitus that I had in my right ear because the cochlear implants tend to stop the tinnitus. And so that was on October 2018. On December 22nd, I was implanted and then activated January 18th. So I've been active for about a year and a half. Yeah, it's been one of the craziest experiences, I think, to be typically hearing in both ears, then to suffer a hearing loss in one ear and to then have a cochlear implant. I don't have words. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely a unique journey for sure. It's not something that people hear a lot about, the hearing loss that is acquired, you know, as opposed to from birth, when there are traumatic injuries. Did you have, did you end up having any concussion or like brain related injury as well? I did. I had, I suffered from a traumatic brain injury and actually the vertigo that I was struggling from were, they were diagnosed as migraines from that car accident, from the the TBI that I suffered. I would not have said that because I never, I never thought about it. So I take care of those differently now. But the original, I even went back and read the original reports from the first couple scans that they did on my head and they list like a skull fracture and, and where it was. So I really don't know what happened. I, I mean, I know when, when, when we did the current, my, the scans before my surgery, like before, you know, I found out that I could go for a cochlear implant. And then when we went for the surgery, we even asked the doctor, you know, could you see what happened? Did you see anything? And, and you know, all he could say was, well, she obviously took a shot to the head. It's really hard to tell. Definitely. 
What was it like when you were activated? I know that's a lot of uh, also a question a lot of parents have when they have a young child and they go through this whole journey with them and their they kid can't really tell them what it's like. <laughs> when they, it was really emotional for me. I have a I have a video of when it was first turned on and my audiologist we played like the little pulses in the ear. You know, we were sort of mapping it out and she told me to raise my hand when I could hear the pulses. And I was so hesitant to raise my hand because I was terrified that I was actually hearing something in my left ear that it was crossing over. So I like raised my hand. She was like, you're right. You know, she was like, that's the first time you've heard anything on that side in a long time. I was like, yeah, it's been 10 years. So it was emotional. And then when she, she made it, when she, when we went live and the, the imprint went live, my dad started talking to me and I, I started to cry because it was the realization that, you know, for 10 years, I believed something I believe something one way and and then it it had it was completely different. In fact, the audiologist was saying to me that they weren't sure if the auditory nerve would respond because it had been so long since any sound had hit that cochlea. So when they tested it during my surgery, they were saying we weren't really even we weren't sure what to expect and the amount of response that they got from the auditory nerve in the surgery everybody was shocked. And so when they, when it went live, when the implant went live, I was sitting in the audiologist's office and I started to cry because of the realization that, you know, you just never know, you know, like everything about my life changed once. And then it changed all over again. You know, right. When I started feeling confident in who I was and the things that made me who I was or who I am, you know, it changed again. When I first started hearing people talk, it sounded a little bit like Gollum from the Lord of the Rings. That's the best way I can think to describe it. It was like kind of whispery, kind of raspy. The first few days I had it, it actually made me a little nauseous because suddenly I was getting so much input on that side. I've adjusted to it now. I do, I practice a lot. So I'll stream, I stream podcasts to my implant to practice. I I can answer the phone with my cochlear implant. So a lot of times I'll tell people like, just be patient. I'm practicing, you know, I'm talking into my, my implant. I'm, I'm, I'm working my right ear. It's been challenging, but it's been absolutely worth it, especially with the kids that I work with. And they're so brave. All of them are so brave. And they remind me every day how brave I can be just by watching them. And they teach me every day about different things, you know, different things that they hear, different things that they think. And it just reminds me that there's never a point where we stop learning. There's never a point where we've just arrived and things are over and we have nothing else to do. We're always learning. There's always more to do. And so this is just, just another step forward. That is incredible. You know, I did also just want to add a disclaimer, you know, that every single person in every case is going to be so unique. And like you said about your auditory nerve, that 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 was intact and that you were, you know, so successful just right in the beginning, you were able to, to hear the sounds and not all activations go that way. And everyone has different anatomy and everyone has different sets of circumstances that make them more or less a candidate uh, for quote unquote success with a cochlear implant. But what an incredible journey. And I love also hearing your attitude and knowing that, you really do see every step as part of a journey because there, you know, when it's over, then that means there's no more life left. So <laughs> it's a good thing to be on a journey of life and, and that you're the kids you work with, you know, you have a very special connection to, to their experience. And in, in a way that's really moving. I can't imagine, you know, what, what it is to be a kid and look at your teacher who has the same device or you know same experience of certain things as you that's really moving <laughs> we talk about
about it all the time. I have some students that, you know, they, they use Bajas. And so, you know, we talk to them about how it's our superpower. You know, some people wear glasses, some people have different colored hair, some people have whatever it is that makes them who they are. This is ours and it's our superpower. I love that I can connect with them in that way. And it also has helped me in talking to parents too, because they have, they do have a lot of questions and, and there's a lot of people that will say, you know, what did you hear? What was, you know, how did it go when this was turned on? How do you, how do you hear with it now? And because it never occurred to me, and even, even professionals in the field, right? It never occurred to me that some of the professionals that I work with have never heard through a cochlear implant before. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily understand what that, what that means because they don't have a cochlear implant. So I, you know, I remember talking to a few, a few people that I, um, that I had interned with and they were like, what does it sound like? And it kind of just made me laugh. You know, I don't, those are things I never thought about. And so it's helped me be able to, to talk to people about different aspects of, of this field of this, of this wonderful crazy field that we're in because there's people need, they, they have questions people they, they want to be able to connect they, they people need different kinds of supports so. exactly and why I'm so grateful that you came on the show to share your story and share so much hope for you know what's possible and um, at the same time I'm wondering what your thoughts are you know students who who might not be candidates for auditory, oral, auditory, verbal approach. And, you know, because there's this big question about do we introduce sign language when we're so really trying to promote auditory, verbal usage of devices and, you know, to try to make the brain a hearing brain. Like, what are some of your thoughts on that when parents are in that decision? Because they don't know how it's going to go when they have a tiny, tiny kiddo and they have to make certain decisions. I'm always a huge proponent for sign language. I love it. I think it's wonderful. I think it's beautiful. I think for young children, the biggest sort of the biggest milestone needs to be, in my opinion, giving them access to language, right? So I think if you're incorporating sign is never going, it's never going to take away from learning to, to listen and speak. It's only going to add to it. And so if you have somebody who was taking a little bit more time or is unsure about how their child will do as they are learning to listen and speak. I, I think that sign language is a major help. And it, and if your goal is to listen and speak, then that's your goal. Like that's an amazing goal. And your goal can also be to learn to sign as well. And that's just as wonderful and just as amazing. We just want to give kids the ability to communicate and, and have language to have access to language. And so I, my, my pedestal is through any means necessary. So if that means that that child is signing and talking, if, you know, whatever they need so that they can be able to communicate in whatever forms that they can is my goal. That's exactly it. I'm glad you mentioned that language is the goal rather than speech. You know, right. language has different modalities. Yeah, it's, it's really, really amazing how much the technology has advanced uh, and what people are able to achieve. So my question to you is now, do you sing? I do. I still sing all the time. Um, about, oh my goodness, I don't even remember. Maybe two or three years ago, I still, I was able to perform um, in an opera program in Italy. So I was able to go there and I studied for three weeks and I performed at the end of three weeks. I still perform in these deaf music events. So we just did one on Zoom in April and I don't, I haven't sung as much because of the, because of all of the quarantines and the pandemics and everything, but I still actively sing. Um, and I love it. I love to perform and it, it's just another piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Do you find that when you sing, you necessarily have your implant on, do you have your implant on basically all waking hours? How, what's your usage like? 
Yeah, I wear my implant all waking hours. When I I go back and forth when I sing because I'm still sort of trying to figure out what that what what that is like. Um, I'm still starting sort of trying to adjust it is what I should say. Um, I don't get any pitch information from my implant. I know I don't. I can't really pick up a pitch. I mean, I'm starting to be able to do that, but it, they're guesses at best. I'm not positive. I'm like, I don't hear something and think, okay, I know for certain that if I sing this note, it's going to match what was actually, what I actually heard. But I get the pitch, pitch information from my, my left ear. But when I sing, I feel so much more, you know, when you're, when you're singing, your, your body vibrates because you have it's the resonance that happens even when you talk, right? Because your vocal cords vibrate and I feel that so much differently. And so it's been, it's helped me navigate different parts of my voice, like, for, you know, the higher parts versus the lower parts of my voice. And that's really exciting. Um, so when I'm singing, I play around with whether or not I'm wearing it. I, for the most part, I do because I want to be able, like, I want my students to see me go out on stage or wherever, but to see me go sing with this implant on. I don't want them to feel like, oh, well, Miss Jacqueline didn't wear hers. I don't have to wear mine. I want them to, to be proud of that part of themselves and to sing or create music in any way with this wonderful things that thing that makes them who they are, this, this unique part of themselves. And so I'm trying to figure out what that means for myself. So I wear my implant all the time. Like I said, I stream to it. I, I answer my phone with it. I, I play different apps with it, play podcasts. I do some of the music apps from Cochlear. So yeah, I wear it all the time. <laughs> that is awesome. All right. So we have in the All About Audiology community, we have parents of children with hearing loss, uh, people who are studying audiology and lots of related professionals also who listen to the show. And if you can give some advice to our listeners, you can address any of those groups or all of them. What would be some of your wisdom to share with everyone? Well, the one thing that I always tell myself is that it is that to just keep going. You know, the one thing that, that I always look for is regardless of sort of what's, what's happening is to continue moving forward, whatever that means for you. If that's, if that means, you know, going to class one day, then you're moving forward and going to class one day. You know, if that means that you're just getting through a day, you know, just to just keep moving. The second thing that I always tell myself is not to be afraid to fail. I've got plenty of failure stories and plenty of fell on my backside stories where it really took me a while to get myself back up. But at the end of the day, it's all about, for me, it was all about making sure that I could, I could get back up and I could keep going. And I think a lot of my story, a lot of the journey that I've been on has happened because I had something that totally knocked me off my feet and I was found a way to stand up and keep going. And it's not, it's not easy. I don't want you to think that I was something like, okay, I'm ready to go. Like moving on. These were things that took years of my life. You know, we're talking my hearing loss journey. I'm going on, it was 11 years that I lost my hearing this past May, 11 years. And my implant, I've only had for a year and a half. So these, these journeys and these adventures that we're on in life, you know, these things take time. But I would always say, if what you're doing makes you happy, you know, do what you do because you love to for no other reason. And you always find a way to keep moving forward. Yes. Just keep swimming. <laughs> like your songs oh my goodness thank you so much for sharing your story and if listeners want to reach out to you where can they find you you can find me on facebook jacqueline briggs it's jacqueline j-a-c-q-e-l-y-n it's a it's a little bit of a different spelling so you can find me on facebook and my email if anybody wants to to reach out through email too so i can say that if that's helpful 
You can put that in the show notes. I am so, so grateful. Thank you again. And thank you to all the listeners of the All About Audiology podcast. I can't wait to hear your comments or thoughts about our conversation today. And you can send me a DM on Instagram or through Facebook at All About Audiology podcast. I'm Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and this is the All About Audiology podcast.